Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio uh, to record a winging it session. We are getting back at these. We're in the life of Luther. And so, um, you know, a, a nice series on the life of Luther. You'd probably expect maybe this is like session 12. You know, we're probably at like 1546. Luther's going to die. And this will be session 48 because we are, we're taking our time, uh, like Luther's journey to Rome. And, uh, and so we will be talking about today, um, last time, the last two sessions talked about the Augsburg Confession. Per, first it's context, then it's content. Um, we had a very important conversation last time regarding Lutheran confessions in general. So we had two episodes on Augsburg, then we had one on the Lutheran Confessions in general. Um, and I think one of the most important aspects of that conversation was probably what, Mike? Do you, do you remember? Um, Jason Dale. Was well, Jason Dale, um, which has been one of the uh, happier um, developments in my life in 2021. And so I would like to j- thank Jason um, for that. I think there's been a fair amount of uh, listener feedback. Probably the most feedback we've gotten in a while has been pertaining to Jason Dale with uh, overall positive yeah, I've heard reactions. I've heard good things uh, from uh, multiple people that they're they're excited about the prospect of Jason Dale and maybe uh, visiting someday. Yeah, so um, I hope tourism keeps up because a city can turn real quickly. Yeah, right? yeah. it's a big sure. it's a big part of their uh, their overall economy. Right, and their economy I think is diverse enough that it's not one thing or the other. Right, right? so they they're gonna be okay. The uh, I think Jason Dale, if I'm not mistaken, is about 45 minutes from a major university. So it's a nice bedroom community mm-hmm. for, for academics. It also it's a minor hospital hub. Yes, um, for the area. Uh, but I mentioned Jason Dale because unfortunately, um, we're going to have to stay focused for this one because uh, Jason and I have to teach right after this. And you you have office hours after this, huh? Um, I am in office hours. <laughs> okay, so um, I will be teaching. At, I will be leaving at two. So we're we're having to do our jobs again. Um, or our callings. Very difficult. And, uh, yeah, it's really cramping my schedule personally. Um, Not as much Jason's schedule, it seems. No. (laughs) No. Yeah. And Mike is just all over the place. So I'm a very busy man. And uh, so we're going to try to stay focused. Um, I know our shtick is that I'm kind of the focused, let's nose to the grind kind of guy. Mike (laughs) likes to have tangents Mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, interject things. Um, and I appreciate that about the show, Mike. I think it's one of the things you really bring. But I'm going to have to ask you dial in a little bit. Right. It's like uh, comedian and straight man kind of thing yeah. sometimes. So right? You're the straight man. We're going to have to both be straight men okay. um, for purposes uh, of this uh, of this session. All right. That was awkward. Um, we're going to talk about um, – we've already done – you had mentioned this before, but we've, we've done the history of the Diet of Augsburg, and now we're, we're talking uh, the confession, uh, the Augsburg Confession, and now – not not necessarily the historic the historic um, immediate aftermath yet, but let's get into the mind of Luther as he sees this history being play out. What's going to happen next after Augsburg? Because it's uh, a it's a huge turning point theologically, but also historically. Yeah. So we jumped a little bit ahead when we talked Lutheran confessions. Jumped to like fifteen seventy seven, fifteen eighty. Now we're back to 1530, 1531. Luther's going to write this. Um, we're going to talk about Luther's warning, which is. Um, he writes in 1530, published, it gets published in 1531. And we're going to call this episode probably Torgau, 
and uh, something like the question of resistance. Um, Torgau is where the elector had um, some lodgings, and there would often be meetings there. And Torgau was after Augsburg, um, where there was this meeting to discuss, can we defend ourselves against the emperor should he invade? Um, and should he invade, especially with the um, goal of re-Catholicizing Lutheran territory? So this would have been, by definition, a religious war, right? There might have been other benefits for the emperor, but the reason for invading would have been um, religious, to basically um, slowly uh, do away with um, the Lutheran uh, confession. And, and lest you think this is a relic of history... This still goes on. Yeah. And um, here at Torgau, then, the jurists, or um, I suppose we could say lawyers, or legal counsel, and uh, maybe political aides um, for electoral Saxony are going to make arguments for why it was um, just and right, uh, let alone permissible, to defend... uh, for the elector of Saxony to defend his territory should the emperor invade. And these are gonna, uh, many of these are going to be constitutional arguments. Not in the same way we make constitutional arguments because we have a, a set document that we're referring to, um, but constitutional arguments that are kind of a collection of written things about how the empire should focus, um, collections of customary things about how things have operated, um, saying that the lesser magistrate... So the person, imagine in America, the lesser magistrate would be like a governor to the president, um, can defend his subjects. Um, this will be, probably it could be an episode itself for how this will be influential down the road. Um, but this is also important, too, for people who do the history of theories of resistance, because uh, I'll throw it to you guys, and, and if maybe you're not thinking what I'm thinking. Usually if theories of resistance in Protestantism are tossed about, Who's the reformer that usually gets credit for him or his branch of reform? Calvin. Would be Calvin. Um, And here we will see Luther's warning and then later the Magdeburg Confession actually predate um, Calvin's. The difference will be as Calvinists will talk about resistance, they're talking about it especially in the Swiss sense of larger or of smaller like city-states, city councils having the right to do so. Luther's going to do so in the context of territorial princes and dukes with those above them. Maybe we should just remind our readers about the, the Holy Roman Emperor and just how does he get elected and there is and is kind he of like a, a US president right, or not? Is this this is this is not King of France, but it is not term limit United States president, but it's 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 its own unique thing. So go ahead, you since you're the expert way you Well can no I I will um Maybe I'll, I'll throw to you guys. That air got louder, even though I turned the temp up. Um, I thought it would turn off. The uh, I'll maybe throw to you guys. You know, when you're when you're talking to people, and, and Mike and Luther, or Jason in history of Christianity, I think a lot of our students, being Americans, would think Holy Roman Emperor is something like the federal government, the president, um, and you know, the territories are kind of like the states. How would you? compare or contrast that to with the Holy Roman the Holy Roman Empire and the Emperor I, I think that's a, a reasonable starting point because at least it gives people a frame of reference you know to something that they're that they are more familiar with but at the same time 
it's significantly different where, um, you know, there is this arrangement um, that they had come to and, you know, the, what was it, the golden golden bull of Nuremberg that kind of set up, set up this arrangement and, and, and some of the, the provision of powers and things like that. But it's not as, like you said before, it's not as, you know, exact and codified as what we would point to in our constitution and things like that. Um, and the, the, the federated system is, is absolutely different too. And that the, the emperor and the, the empire have, um, much more limited powers than what we would think of in our, in our federal system. And there's much more, um, inequity maybe from principality to principality, state to state. Uh, you got some states that are very powerful and influential um, and have a much greater say. Uh, and uh, part, of, part of it is because they can, bring, <laughs> they can bring their own armies to the field if, if need be and, and, and use force if necessary to, to make sure things are, are moving forward. Um, but but yeah, it's it's definitely definitely a different arrangement. But but you can kind of use that states and federal government as a, a at least as a starting point. I think for people to wrap their minds around this is kind of how this worked. And do uh, you want to talk about? Do you want me to touch on the electors part? Or well, sure. And I'll just throw in real quick. Um, you mentioned troops, right? Taxes and troops are a big thing that the emperor is dependent upon these territorial rulers for. He doesn't have like the federal government in America would have. Um, this power to to just tax and raise armies. Think of England, right? This was a big development with the parliament. The kings finally said, okay, we're going to need parliamentary approval of this. Um, well, this is even more so than a parliament. You have to get all these princes, dukes, um, sometimes bishop princes uh, together. But go ahead with where you're going. Well, I mean, one more thing on the military. This is um, the emperor's only is as strong as how many troops he has. And so that was one of the issues where uh, we way back you know, probably almost 35 sessions or more ago, maybe in 40, we talked about the possibility of uh, Frederick the Wise becoming um, the Holy Roman Emperor. And I'll let you explain how someone gets elected in a second. But probably it's not going to work because he didn't have enough army. He didn't have enough money for an army, right? And then add into that, you know, that the emperor is elected, and it could be all sorts of different people. It could be a German. It could be. Uh, you know, it could be somebody who is from, you know, from Austria-Hungary or whatever. So you have, you're, you're, you're saying this king of Spain, we also want you to be the emperor of this, right? It, it gets, it gets very complicated. Okay. Yeah. And <clears throat> I think part of that, you know, is the emperor can call on the states to contribute troops, but if you don't have any troops of your own as emperor, you're, <laughs> you're going to have a hard time, right? Um, yeah. So when it comes to the election process there are you know uh, seven princes that are set aside to be electors and um, four of them were governing larger territories in the empire and then you had three that were uh, in addition to governing substantial territories they served as arch archbishops uh, in the roman catholic curia as well um, and then whenever an emperor died because once you were elected you could serve for life or until you decided you didn't want to anymore which charles will abdicate mm -hmm. and he will yes the monastery in the yes yep and uh so so you have so that's that happens um and then when an election is called upon uh it's those seven guys that are asked to 
cast the vote, cast the vote um, to determine who the next emperor would be. And this is good background for us as we're, you know, what the question of resistance against this 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 emperor. It's not just a question of Catholic versus Lutheran, right? There's right. a lot going on here, and uh, the 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 emperor um, has certain rules, right? He cannot enter into uh, another territory, right, a ter- of a lesser magistrate, unless there, there's good reason. And the, um, you know, the lesser magistrate cannot attack the emperor unless it defend him. I mean, there's there's all sorts of little complicated rules. You have all sorts of different and powers. Promises made with specific territories over the years of how things would operate. And so it is, you know, this universal question of what is a just war. That's what we're after here. In each context, it's going to have a different flavor. And so that's why it's necessary for us to understand the very, very, very unique situation that is the Holy Roman Empire at this time. And um, and Jason mentioned something that I think is just maybe good for us to um, quick hit on as well, um, that some of the electors are both bishops and princes, right, that they rule territories. So when we're talking about a war that might have been um, – that had religious grounds um, – Keep in mind, all the major players who are ruling territories are Christians, right? We are still in the age of Christendom, where it is just assumed um, that the average European, the overwhelming majority, um, are Christians. And to the extent that you have someone holding a secular and a sacred office um, within one territory. So some of what Luther will talk about in his warning, where he will talk about the defense of the gospel and stuff like that, Right is is coming from the perspective of living in Christendom, right? That the that the prince who he'll also talk about being a, a, a notes bishop, an emergency bishop, <clears throat> has a responsibility um, both to the state but also to his church, right? Um, and so, in the warning, he'll praise his elector for his reply to Eck, for instance, the Roman Catholic theologian. Um, Maybe we should give the title of the document. Yeah, we're and just, to just give me a couple more sentences and we'll get there. But I just say this because, as someone who's done a fair amount of work with the Magdeburg Confession, there's people who love to take that. There's especially, let's just say, Americans who are looking for a reason for revolution or resistance. And they want to import whole cloth the, uh, the context in which the Magdeburg, right, that this happened, and just Americanize it. And, and, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, president, governor, stuff like that. Um, or to bring in religion in a way that was maybe appropriate to, and contextually, maybe Luther couldn't even have thought outside of it at the time, um, to a country that, right, we're, we're not in Christendom, and, and uh, we don't expect our leaders necessarily to be emergency bishops and, and, and kings. And, and generally, and, that's probably a good thing. Right. right? We're thankful. Uh, and you can, you can maybe see, too, how <clears throat> when you have bishops serving as territorial leaders— how easy it can be to blur those lines mm-hmm. to say, well, is he is he functioning this way as a territorial leader or as a bishop? And say, well, the, it's the bishop that does this. And it's, well, no, it's the bishop as the territorial yeah. leader. And you can see how that just complicates that whole and matter. Then you're going to throw in another, let's just say, celestial power. Like the, I'm thinking of a bigger power, sun, moon, whatever, like the king of France or whatever. Then you have the pope there, and they're all pulling on things. And... The Pope at this time, of course, has some some secular power, but just the fact that three of three of the seven have any bishops, <laughs> yep. um, he's going to have uh, a pull that is completely foreign to the world today, right? 
I, I mean, yeah, the Catholic Church may be involved in politics behind the behind the scene, and sometimes there's some strong arming, but definitely not to the extent of of this day. Yep. And so, Luther's warning, um, and you guys can fill this out more if I'm missing anything. So, Doctor Martin Luther's warning to his dear German people. Yes, sorry, um, the the full title. Um, this is after the Augsburg recension, right? The um, the the Diet of Augsburg is closed. Um, and the uh, Lutheran, I mean, we could say Protestant or Lutheran, Luther references being called Lutheran right in a derogatory way in here. Um, there is a set amount of time in which they're supposed to basically recant, right? Was it six months, I think? Um, yeah, right there. Something along those lines. And there's a real worry what happens when we don't do that because we're not going to do that, right? The whole point of the stand they took at Augsburg was that they weren't going to recant they were going to confess um the wittenberg theologians and you know the most prominent being luther and melanchthon um there's this memo basically saying that um we can't say it's impermissible for the elector to defend his territory um you know self-defense is permissible you'll notice they don't go so far as saying like that it's our job as as preachers and theologians to advocate this um they definitely want to make clear um we prefer peace and compromise and diplomacy um but that will be a big opening the fact that it is then permissible um you guys can correct me but a big part of luther's warning will be him saying you know with the peasants rebellion i stepped in and we've we have a session on that um and it was unfortunate the timing with which his works that were meant to be published um, simultaneously were published. But he says, with this one, if this is a religious war and we're attacked, I'm not, I'm not stepping in. I'm letting things take their course. Um, some may read that and almost take that as Luther just saying, you know what, I'm done. Um, I don't think that's what he's doing. Um, but so this is written then, and it's published 1531, but it's written in reaction to... Uh, um, kind of the Augsburg recess. They've they've now closed the diet, um, and the expectations that were placed upon the Protestants. Um, and uh, what was your guys' take? I encouraged you, if you had time, to to read Luther's warning. I'll I will um, personally recommend for anybody who is interested in understanding Luther, or learning more about Luther's warning, but then also the Magdeburg Confession that comes later. Um, David Whitford's book published by CPH, Tyranny and Resistance, is phenomenal. Um, David Whitford is just a, a, a very good scholar of the 16th century. He's done a lot of good work. Um, so you could look more there for that if you wanted. But but for you two, what, did you, what was your take on the warning? I think many people know early on, especially Luther is against resistance. He says, God will protect us. We don't need the sword. Um, this seems maybe a flip. What, what What's your takes? Yeah, it does seem that uh, <clears throat> he backs off that stance, although I think in some ways it's still a consistent stance, but he has to flesh out more the implications of that. You know, he's saying, I think before where he is saying, it, you have no right whatsoever to take up arms against, against your government, um, that is uh, not quite the same situation uh, as we're dealing with now um, because he's saying there you had people that were taking it upon themselves to try to overthrow the order of things and, and, and undo the, the, the 
powers that were justly in place. Here you say, here he's saying we are talking about a different, a different situation entirely where it is the powers that are justly in place now turning in force against its subjects. Yeah, and I, I think I, I like how you put that. Right, in both cases, it's a threat to good order. The peasants' revolt is a threat to good order from below. Now we have a threat to good order um, from above. Uh, Michael, any thoughts you had? Yeah, I mean, I think also he's doing the hard work of trying to figure out, okay, is this is it right to resist or not? We, we, may, we may put it into terms of just war. So, like, you have somewhat of a theory of just war, whatever, however the nuances that, that is that you have and then you're kind of going through okay does this does this reach the level does this fulfill the criteria of a just war now luther's not going to be that systematic because that's not how he's a thinker but if you notice he he does kind of say okay he starts off with comparing this to egypt um and the exodus uh these are the people that have hardened their heart we 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 did what was necessary we gave every chance we were the peaceful ones. Um, this was complete rejection of any, any, anything of God's truth, but also just the ability to have an open conversation about this. So he keeps going back to the idea of here, here is where they are wrong and we are right. And so kind of saying, I think this reaches the criteria. Now, he's, again, not going to be systematic about it, which we, we could be. We could pull things out there. The only place where he's a little bit systematic, and I mean systematic as he says, in the first place and in the second place and the third place, yeah. right, yep. is, um, you know, trying to say, all right, I, it's not my job to to get involved in this. At the same time, as as a theologian, as a pastor, more likely, he's saying kind of to his, his people, if you if you go once, if you go to this other side, like on the, on the papist side, whether because you are. Uh, believe that theologically or you are don't want to see any kind of war for whatever reason he says well then you have to accept the whole thing right then you have to say that it's okay and then he starts saying that it's okay for simony and it's okay for this and it's okay. and he starts listing all of the things a that, long a long list, list yeah. of of grievances that everybody would have had against the roman catholic church that was not just would have not necessarily been from the the protestant side um, you know, within the Catholic Church, we've talked about before, there is obviously uh, um, uh, urge to reform, a moral reform, not necessarily a theological reform. So um, I, I think he's, I think he's very pastoral in this, right? He's saying this may, this war may come, there may be violence. Um, and so he does his, you know, if God takes me, I'm fine. If he doesn't, I'm fine. And he's like, if he does take me, though, at least I'll go with a bunch of priests and whatever else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but then says, you know, he does kind of burden their conscience a little bit uh, uh, by saying, hey, um, you know, you, you kind of got to pick a side in this one. Yep. You and, really and do. He's preaching even to the emperor. You can tell, right, that he's appealing to Charles' own conscience as, yeah. as well. <clears throat> Mike, I, yeah. I'd like to throw to you. Um, so Luther has this great line. He says, Minster and the insurrectionists did, act, did not act thus peacefully, right? Um, they did what the papists are doing now, meaning what the what it was feared that might happen, the, the attack by the Roman Catholic parties on the Lutheran territories. The, the claim he's making then is that both Minster and now those threatening attack are acting, they're going beyond their office, right, outside of the, the given office that they've been given. Um, and, and, and here, we have to make two kingdom distinctions. Mincer, 
um, was not an agent of the state. He was simply a, uh, a theologian and a religious leader. Um, but here you have agents of the state who are also right now um, having to address things regarding religion. Um, but So you've got vocation there. And then also the shift that we see in Luther from kind of, you know, well, God can, God will protect us. Um, his will will be done. If we die, we die. And, you know, the jurist kind of saying, like, but it's okay for us to put, like, cannons on the wall, right, to, to be prepared just in case. Um, maybe that, that God works through means and, and with vocation there. Is Luther maybe growing into a more robust, so to speak, Luther position um, in this regards, possibly? Um, sure. I, I would say this. When you were talking, what came to mind is the concept of order and, and God's order and how it relates to faith, right? So God has set this order up where I'm in charge of this, I've been called to this, and you've been called to that. And I don't like how you're doing your job and fulfilling your vocations. And I may be absolutely right, but I don't necessarily have a, um, a call to, to go into your sphere of influence. There may be cases where that happens, right? I mean, this is just a whole other way to talk about the situation, including just war theory, uh, to a certain extent. When do I step out of my calling to do your calling, right? And I think Luther is coming to the conclusion that Mincer certainly was stepping outside of his calling at that given time. And he says, is that really any different than a, um, a bishop doing the secular work right now or the Holy Roman Emperor telling the, the, the people, this is how you should believe. And, and I, I didn't underline this. I should have underlined it. So I was looking back and I couldn't find it. But he does talk about a little bit. I don't think he really explores that. But the idea of the secular government can't, has no right and cannot get into the conscience. He wouldn't yeah. have put it that yep. way. But, but there's, you're stepping over your bounds. And, right. and it's going to end poorly. Because he, he says, you, you basically, you're, you're opposing the gospel, which is true. But he says, even if it weren't true. Right. This is not how you go about right. dealing with it. And so now we immediately, of course, go to uh, church and state there. But that's the, the, it's just a little bit different context, the separation of church and state. Um, but there's some truth to there that there is a limited government by the very fact that the government can't, got, can't get into my conscience as much as it tries to. Right. So I, I think this is where two kingdoms and vocation come together. Now, when it comes to vocation and good order, it's a broken world. It's a disordered world. So there are times when you break out of your sphere of influence and your call and your sphere is expanded. That's Deborah I, in the Old Testament. Yeah. I, I like to think about, okay, I have this, it's, it's Venn diagram, right? I have, this is my sphere and it overlaps with other people's spheres. I don't think those overlapped. Can you try it again with the gestures? <laughs> there we go. Oh, there. yeah. Out of love, my sphere may extend beyond what I was called to do. So that I, I use a, a very easy example of like a mother and a mother-in-law. Um, the mother-in-law needs to maybe keep her mouth shut sometimes and trust. There's, here's where the trust comes. Trust that God has the right woman to take care of the grandkids. But what if that, the mother is injured, passed away, alcoholic. <laughs> I mean, any, any number of things, the grandmother must then expand her sphere out of love for the, for the grandchildren. Now, when this happens, even though it's an act of love, 
it's still a disorder because grandma can't be grandma anymore. She has to be mother. And who suffers but the child because the child either has no grandma anymore because she just has an old mom. Or she doesn't have a disciplinary kind of mom structured, but she just has, you know, grandma who just wants to bake her cookies all the time. She misses that. So when you have, there are times, an emergency bishop. Right. When that expands. But it is going to be, by definition, disordered. When you try to... And, and, and to that end, Luther's not advocating, should there be war, that you do away with the imperial system and the empire. He is advocating, precisely as you're saying, the lesser magistrate expands their their sphere of influence for now to stop this threat, but this is not revolution. Yeah. And, of course, the, the, the problem, I mean, maybe Luther, Luther is, naive is too strong of a word, but when somebody takes power, it's very hard to give up. Yeah. Right? I mean, he doesn't necessarily address that. But in the background always is... Although I was department head, and I, I gave it up. Thankfully gave it up, yeah, yeah because that was a lot of power. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's mostly paperwork, which is why I gave it up. Right. It's, I think if uh, it had been power, I maybe yeah. would have tried to hold on. Um, it's kind of like uh, I gave up the power to be the janitor. Right. Like I don't know that there was a whole lot of power there, because you're just cleaning up messes. Yeah. But there is a lot of work. There is a lot of work, and yeah. it's a worthwhile vocation. It is a worthwhile vacation, and I vocation. do it vocation, and I do it with a humble heart. Would you not say? Yeah. Okay. You're one of the most humble men I know. Yeah. You right. are. <laughs> Michael doesn't brag. That's one of the things about him. I make him sometimes have to brag on me yeah. because I, I'm insecure. Underneath <laughs> all of this, especially for the two kingdom stuff. Oh, they were going to talk about me. Yeah. Underneath <laughs> all of Wade. <laughs> underneath, there's a lot un- of them. <laughs> underneath Wade, there is a, there's just a little kid having fun. Um, so we see two kingdoms and vocation coming together here a little bit. I'm glad you asked that question. I wasn't thinking about that. Well, and, and, and if I can throw yep. in with that just to see if it leads to anything else for you. <clears throat> he has, um, I don't have the page number here because I, I saved it as a PDF. Um, but he says, it is also obvious that they are acting contrary to imperial and to natural law. Yeah, I have um, that. Not, yeah. And there, um, as we get then two kingdoms butting up against offices and vocations, as well, that while this the the core question may be religious, um, Luther's not advocating for a biblical grounds for resistance. He's saying there's a constitutional grounds for resistance um, that may be carried out um, in defense of the persecution of biblical doctrine, if that makes sense. And so, you know, as people navigate within those voc- vocations as well, as you were getting at, Michael, um, you know, it's um, the, uh, I was going to go with the grandmother analogy more, but I don't know if I can make it work. It's a good analogy. It's my own lack of being able to make it work. But I don't know if that, if that adds anything yeah. to what you're. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know. There's a reason that grandma steps in. Maybe to, there's a blood tie, right? It makes sense that yeah. grandma is the, the one who then takes over. Mm-hmm. So also when ne- imperial or natural law is being neglected and think natural law and reason is the right foundation of, of secular government in America, for instance, um, then it makes sense that the lesser magistrates step in. Yeah, as opposed to... Just the average citizen. I'm going to... A vigilante or, you right. know, a, I don't know, insurrection on the Capitol. If capital. this were America and it, were, it makes sense that the governor would step up and not the mayor of my 
wife's fine town of Houstisford. Which or, yeah. I don't even know if they have a mayor. I th- think they may just have a village council. Or just a flat-out insurrection. Like Minster. If, I mean, which if, if we're going to keep this analogy going, militia. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Although our constitution does provide well, we're for not, a, yeah. a well-regulated, <laughs> well-regulated, yeah. and I, that's interesting. I mean, because they appeal through the system, right? right. And, and which is only in defense, right? And I think just going back to that, you know, imperial and the imperial and natural law. I mean, he he points to a you know anecdotal bit of evidence, right? and I forget the which which of the theologians it was, but that was counseling one of the, the the Romanist theologians counseling the emperor oh, yeah. as he's coming into town. He's like, I'll tell you how to put an end to this situation real quick. You just start killing Lutherans. Yeah. Um, which that goes against natural law, certainly. And it would certainly have been against imperial law. And, and it goes to the fact, too, he's saying, how could anyone say this is a just cause that we can get behind? Um, because if you're just going to come in against all law and use the sword and use force um, to try to enact the will and go back on enact you know the will of the Roman church and go back on your word well yeah there's just a whole whole mess of that and, and you know um, I think he was recounting that I don't know if he had he didn't have firsthand knowledge of that but he said it was it was one of the guys yeah. and he, he at also the diet mentioned that reported there it. things he's heard that Charles V has said or others have counseled yep. and keep in mind at an imperial diet these rumors are going to swirl and, and just as today often there's leaks that turn out to be true yep. um, we and he's very hit- complimentary of the the emperor and saying yeah. he he was acting just and right in accord with his, and his calling and position are, yes. and he says it makes sense anytime you have a moderate fair ruler you're going to have advisors who try to exploit that. Yeah. Um, maybe that's in, true with moderates in America. Which is interesting because we've said all, all along that Charles V sometimes gets a bad rap. Yeah, we both mm-hmm. are big on that. Okay, two two quick things before we move on and we forget. Um, what was the last thing you just said, Jason? About the, the emperor. Um, oh, yeah. Doing- so we should mention... Luther was not in Augsburg, right? Just a reminder to our listeners. Um, so his accounts that he's getting is from the Lutheran parties that were there, which also maybe makes sense for the warning. Sometimes when he maybe goes on a bit, like this is the ability. Now he has his chance to make his statement on what transpired in Augsburg. Um, secondly, um, if you're in a room with kids or you're driving with kids and they're able to understand spelling, if they can't figure out spelling yet, you're okay. Um, but if they can spell, maybe earmuffs for a second, okay? So kids, if you can spell, hands over ears. Um, Luther calls the papist A-S-S-E-S and says, and I quote, No matter how angry they are, I will say to them, Dear sirs, if you are angry, step away from the wall. Do it in your underwear and hang it around your neck. Um, meaning uh, P-O-O-P in your, uh, in your underwear. The Okay, uh, kids, you can take your, your hands off because I know you were listening still because that's what we do. I remember being a kid, you can open your fingers a little. Um, maybe we can say something. If readers do, uh, if listeners do read this warning um, or if they've read any Luther at all, I don't think we've hit on this a lot. This would be a session we need to do is polemics in the 16th mm-hmm. century. Um, I think some of us, when we're younger as Lutherans, or when you're in college or seminary, kind of like to embrace this side of Luther, 
right? And we're going to be super sarcastic and, um, you know, have some good insults, whatever. Um, but to contextualize it, right, this was the way of debate at the time. But why would, why would Luther use such harsh language? Why is, why, why do you, is it justified? Why is he so worked up? What are your, your guys' thoughts? Well, I, you know, like I said, we should have a whole episode on polemics just in general, right? Um, and its use and misuse. You know, this is part of the time, but Luther does go overboard. And it's more than just he's better than everybody else. Which he is. <laughs> he is. So I was going to, like, uh, we just had Luther. If, like, he is, like, the equivalent to pamphlets of, like, you ever see 8 Mile? <laughs> and, like, Eminem's rap battling? Uh-huh. You know, he's like insulting, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, but also kind of insulting himself. Like, and Luther does it. He says, right. like, "Well, the fat doctor." Um, Luther is like that. He's rabbit. Yeah. In Detroit. Okay. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he is, uh, but I think it is more than he Something is. Mom's spaghetti. Just <laughs> better at it. Yeah. I think he he sometimes goes over the top. Now, the stuff that was said about him from Jewish sources, Roman Catholic sources were also not very nice. That's true. So uh, in Luther class, uh, what I'm doing for the paper this year, and I did this last year too, is uh, the students choose a character from this from the life of Luther, and they have to write, they have to read a biography of that, either one and a couple sources or two biographies, and then write a paper on this person in relation to the Reformation and Luther. And so uh, the second day of class, I had that pictorial directory of Luther people that, you know, and I go through and I go, not worth, you're not going to find enough stuff. I'm trying to narrow it down to people that would be worthy of a paper and that they would have access to stuff. And I find myself going, Luther made him cry. (laughs) Luther made him cry. (laughs) Luther made him cry. (laughs) The, um, it, uh, I, I, I do think I didn't get a chance to look at the, the German for this to try to look up the Weimar. But when he says, do it in your underwear, I bet that's not what he said. I bet it was more vulgar, huh? I would bet it would be more vulgar, yes. Or much more descriptive. Yeah. Stay tuned. We'll we, next uh, episode. we like to, to, when we translate stuff, we well, like to keep grandma in mind. Yeah. What was the original question before we started talking um, about this? That he wasn't at Augsburg. Yeah. And then secondly, um, what is? why does he get so worked up about these things? What does Luther see? As, as we wrap up, because we have to go to class, but like part of the reason for the polemics is you think the thing really matters, right? That's saying this is so important. There's historical urgency. Yeah, here. having looked at his warning and knowing the context, maybe as we wrap up, what are the things that make it so urgent or pressing for him that he ha- is going to be polemical? I'll just say two, and then Jason can answer it. One is eventually war is going to happen, right? So there's some urgency there. And to your point about this is not the... The only thing he's thinking about, you know, he's not he's not giving up. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written 50 pages on it or whatever. But he's probably a little fed up. And I'm guessing we will. He know he was a little irritated that he couldn't be at Augsburg. I mean, that, that, that was a big that was a big I got to trust my guys to do this. Um, so I think there is some some personal urgency there, too. And I think he knows that when war breaks out, if they're not. If they're not prepared or not not equipped to to answer some of these questions and and ready to respond, he's the gospel is at stake. You know the things that they've built in the in the Reformation uh, and restoring the the gospel to these lands to these territories. You know building this 
this new church in a sense, although it's really kind of now that becomes the turning point of building the new church, right, rather than just reforming the old. But he said, this is at stake and and we need to have an answer. We need to be ready to go if and when it comes to that because um, that's what's on the line. Yeah, and I think the only thing I can add is, you know, he does mention as well, um, I don't mean fruits of the gospel as in like um, a social gospel or that the gospel is largely um, political, but he does mention as well like all the things that have gotten better because of this Reformation. And you think of how the Reformation impacted the care of the poor or schools or how we view church and state. Um, he says this stuff will be gone too. Um, so the social, um, what, the salt and light in a very vocational way that is brought through Christians who are set free in the gospel, um, that also is a fruit that, that can be lost when, um, yeah. when the gospel is persecuted in the state. Um, is overstepping its its bounds and maybe just a point you know to clarify to what i was talking about with the with the church you know and the things that they've built he's not talking about the church as an institution he's right. not talking about the church as as you know uh buildings or the church as um organizations he's talking about souls he's talking about uh the souls who now know jesus as their savior who had not before uh and the fact that that will that that they will be forced back under the under the yoke of law and tyranny and the gospel will be taken away from them that's what's at stake and uh that's something that he said boy we we just we we got to be ready so that that doesn't happen and and i think um look for an episode i sent to peter i think i sent to you mike i don't know if i sent it to you jason i'm on that that allure that jesus and marks the christianian ideologies I think that'll be a fun episode if we read and do at some point to build off of that, of right the connection between um, uh, secular and spiritual tyranny and how Christians ought to relate to, to both. Um, anything else, or should I wrap it up, you guys? I think you can wrap it up, and I would just echo again that when we think of church and state and vocation and, and just war and all this, for Luther, it's never far in the background that the, que- the question is, does this affect the, the gospel, right? Yeah. And yeah. I think that's almost completely lost even in our own American Lutheran circles when we talk about politics. Yeah. And, yeah, big time um, in contemporary debates and how resistance comes up now. Um, yeah, uh, I think the place of the gospel is a, a good thing, a metric to look for. Like maybe the first one. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, Jason and I are going to have to make our way down to aspire to, to teach Jason's a little faster than me, um, but neither of us are uh, are gazelles anymore. <laughs> um, so we're going to have to leave yep. ourselves some time to get there. Uh, in the meanwhile, we hope you've enjoyed this session. Um, do we got a, a next session in mind now? We're moving well, on. Well, I was thinking, you know, do we want... We may actually have to talk about the Torgau meeting, right? And then that'll start getting us into Schmalkald, um, Peace of Nuremberg. I think we're at the point where we should maybe make some chronological yeah um the the one other thing that came to mind um because he was one of the people included in the memo of the theologians here who i don't think we've done one on yet would be spelatin yeah we've done staupitz we've done melanchthon did we do john steadfast i think so we should look at that 
Um, but this might be a spot to maybe do another profile of a person. Okay, John the Steadfast is going to be passing away in a couple, in about a year and a half. Okay. And then we have and his son that may we can maybe combine yeah. those. So a we should bit. maybe think about a, a, a few biographical ones. But we will we will stick at it. Um, as and we thank Jason for joining us again, and hopefully continue to be a, a regular voice, especially for these sessions uh, episodes. It's harder for Jason to make because uh, he just works three days a week. That's um, right. And so to, yep. to be around is a little harder. Um, but we thank you for joining us. Um, I hope it's a sunny day in Jasondale. And uh, let the bird fly. Another round, another round, one more round won't get me down.